the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. Well, this is Holy Week and much like uh, the, the day, the year, the week that the events that we celebrate, commemorate, reflect on. Um, when those events were taking place, most of the world was blissfully unaware uh, that such provision was being made for them. And that's true today as well, as uh, many of us who are followers of Christ uh, appreciate and recognize the tremendous sacrifice that was made on our behalf. The rest of the world continues to turn. And we're going to talk much about what's going on in the world today in light of the fact that this is uh, Holy Week. And we remember um, the words that were spoken by Jesus, the things that he did for us, uh, and the great celebration that's coming on Resurrection Sunday. One of the stories that really captured my attention today was out of San Bernardino, the elementary school there where there was a shooting. Two adults, the headlines uh, originally read, two adults dead, two uh, students critically injured, and the suspected uh, murder-suicide. I received a notice just a few moments ago that one of those two students, an eight-year-old, was in fact killed in that uh, shooting at North Park Elementary School in San San Bernardino, California. Authorities say the gunman shot and killed his wife, who was a teacher at the school, before he uh, shot himself. So the details of the story have been emerging. We knew that two of the students who were injured were critically injured. We only learned moments ago that one of them was an eight-year-old, and I believe um, we don't know if it was a boy or a girl, but was uh, was shot and has since died. Um, The male suspect arrived to visit the female instructor in her classroom at North Park Elementary School. And apparently they have a security system where, uh, you know, you can't just walk on campus. But because this was the spouse of the teacher, apparently he was allowed into the school and to her classroom. That's the presumption at this point in San Bernardino when he opened fire, killed the teacher, wounded two students, presumably inadvertently before turning the gun on himself. Officials are not releasing the names or the ages at this time until... Just moments ago, uh, they're still trying to determine a relationship, uh, if there was any, between the shooter and the students. Um, one student had been airlifted. One was taken to uh, by ground by uh, ambulance to a local hospital with critical injuries. Um, uh, they don't believe that the students were targeted, uh, but that is the situation as it has uh, developed. We also know that the San Bernardino, a city of about 216,000, was the site of the December 2015 terror attack that killed 14 people, wounded 22 others at a meeting of uh, San Bernardino's county employees. The husband and wife shooters um, were killed in a gunfight with authorities later that day. The city is known for its high rates of violent crime, especially homicides, and a struggle to emerge from bankruptcy. And today there is grief in that city for the teacher whose life was taken and the student who was uh, inadvertently uh, apparently shot and killed uh, as a result of those events, and details are still emerging just broke my heart to think about this little eight-year-old sitting in a classroom just doing what he was supposed to do, and someone came in, a coward, 
uh, shooting himself, his wife and two children in the process. Well, in other news, after the president was mostly cheered by the international community for his missile strikes targeting the Syrian government, he must now grapple with how to pair his first use of decisive military force with a strategy to contest a six-year-old war that's challenged the entire world. Later in the program, in fact, in the next hour, we're going to talk with James Phillips in more detail about that. He's a senior research fellow for Middle Eastern Affairs, and we're going to talk about the uh, the, the launched um, strike. But what are some of the um, what are some of the potential downfalls, and is there any context that will help us better understand? Uh, whether or not we've been in this same position before and a visceral response, what kind of long-term implications did that have? And I'm looking forward to sharing that conversation with you later in the five o'clock hour. Uh, foreign policy experts say that the president, uh, by inserting himself squarely into a very complex battlefield, will have to deal with the aftermath and decide how he wants to handle the uh, dual challenges of fighting ISIS, which has been our primary priority, and responding to Syria's dictator, leader um, uh, Bashar al-Assad, whose brutality uh, many blame for inflaming terrorism in that region. Jonathan Sanzer, who's a, a scholar in Middle Eastern Studies and vice president of the Foundation for Defense of Democracy, says last night's strikes, this obviously spoken on Saturday, were an act of war. We need to be clear about that. Uh, the inherent um, intent here and messaging has been this was a contained cons- uh, uh, commensurate response, and that's where this ends. But the question is whether the Russians, the Iranians, the Syrians continue to test America's patience. And, of course, we'll have to wait and see whether or not that will be the case. Now, we know that uh, Vladimir Putin will not meet with um, uh, the Secretary Tillerson, as was uh, going to be the case uh, for tomorrow. And the agreement between the United States and Russia to inform one another it, when strikes of any sort were to take place, this is an agreement that Uh, was made under the previous administration. Uh, Vladimir Putin is now withdrawn from that. Now, lots of people are talking about the fact that the Russians were warned, and that proves collusion with Donald Trump. There's an agreement that has been in place prior to the Trump administration that requires the United States, and for that matter, Russia, to inform the other when there are going to be airstrikes uh, in that region. So it wasn't uh, something that was decided by the administration. It's something that's been in place for quite some time. But this week, uh, Trump's calculus seems to change when the president said the chemical weapons attacked um, had crossed a lot of lines for him and that his attitude towards Syria and Assad had changed very much. H.R. Um, McMaster, who's Trump's national security vi- advisor, said on Thursday night that he hoped the U.S. strikes on the Syrian government's infrastructure would shift Assad's calculus because this was the first time America had taken direct military action against the dictator's regime. Well, what that all means moving forward and what cautions uh, should be considered will be the subject of our discussion later in the program with James Phillips, again, Senior Research Fellow for Middle Eastern Affairs. Uh, this uh, move on the part of the president was a departure from the stump speeches that much of the country was familiar with. The defining foreign policy decision for this administration's first hundred days is significant, and it's a shift from the non-interventionalist rhetoric on the campaign trail uh, and facing down the Syrian dictator Bashar Assad. Republican Senators John McCain of Arizona, Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, longtime critics of the president, praised his decision to launch the 59 Tomahawk missiles at the Syrian government's uh, airfield where a chemical weapons attack was launched that killed more than 70 Syrian civilians, including children. 
Conversely, you have Republican Senators Rand Paul of Kentucky and Mike Lee of Utah stressing that Trump, uh, Trump rather, should have sought congressional approval before the strikes. Meanwhile, conservative talk uh, host um, Laura Ingram noted uh, the major policy uh, shift that may or may not sit well with his core supporters. As a candidate, he uh, heavily criticized George W. Bush, for uh, the former president, for his uh, uh, launching of the Iraq War. While in 2013, he tweeted that Presidents Barack Obama, a rather singular, uh, shouldn't intervene in Syria. This doesn't necessarily mean that Trump has shifted away from a cautious attitude toward foreign entanglements as a former White House correspondent for USA Today. He could still be a non-interventionist compared to um, Bush, but at the same time wants to make it clear he's not Obama. It doesn't mean he will be an interventionist, uh, interventionalist rather, in other things, but this means he takes chemical weapons seriously and he believes he had to do something, end quote. Well, during a Rose Garden press conference Wednesday, the president telegraphed a shift before the strike, stating he is flexible, which is an interesting uh, word. Now, it was followed by something of an explanation, but uh, still flexible doesn't exactly inspire certainty. Uh, many are, are, are suggesting the president needs to avoid mission creep moving forward in this uh, this whole thing. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Jason Scott Jones. He's a writer for The Stream. He's an old soldier who worries about his son deploying to Syria as he reflects uh, back on on Iraq and a recent visit there. We're also going to talk with James Phillips. He's a senior research fellow for Middle Eastern Affairs at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about the U.S. launched uh, uh, launch of uh, uh, missiles uh, at the airfield in Syria and what that um, what cautions he would recommend. Travis Weber will join us with the Family Research Council. He's the director of the Center for Religious Liberty. We'll talk about the swearing-in of Neil Gorsuch and what difference that's likely to make on the court. And we'll bring you up to date on the case for Christ that opened in box offices across the country on uh, Friday. Ended up number 10, so they've expanded the number of theaters that uh, movie is now being shown in this Easter weekend. Well, the same President Trump who can uh, be gruff and erratic in public tweets uh, is a commander in chief who's deferential and attentive when he talks to star studded cast of his closest military advisors. That, according to The Washington Times, they write that people familiar with the budding relationships uh, portray Mr. Trump as often in listening mode among his generals and as accessible as the next phone call. They contrast the billionaire real estate developer's affinity for the top brass with the former President Barack Obama's documented standoffishness. The tomahawk strike on Syria on Friday underscores that Washington's warrior class is again in charge of presenting military options to the White House instead of the other way around. With three Marines and a soldier always nearby, perhaps no president in recent memory has surrounded himself on a daily basis with so many senior generals and their strategic brain power. Retired Marine General James Mattis runs the Defense Department. His and Mr. Trump's top military advisor is Marine General Joseph Dunford, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Another retired Marine, four-star General John F. Kelly, is responsible for protecting 325 million U.S. residents as Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. And Mr. Trump's always-present National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster, is an active-duty Army Lieutenant General steeped in battlefield history and doctrine. All four have fought on the ground in Iraq against radical Islam. They bring to Mr. Trump a deep collective knowledge of that country's tribes and politicians who will lead uh, post-Islamic state Iraq, assuming there ever is one. Unlike Mr. Trump, uh, these scholars, warriors, are also 
Um, voracious readers, General McMaster, for example, wrote a book on how Lyndon uh, Johnson bamboozled the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the Vietnam War. Uh, but they share the body clock of a president who sleeps only several hours a day, as well as disdain for political correctness. A retired military officer who knows the generals told the Washington Times the president has grown particularly close to Mr. Uh, Mattis and Mr. Kelly. Uh, lean and rugged, both rose in the Marine Corps on parallel career paths, culminating in leading combat uh, commands uh, for Mr. Mattis, U.S. Central Command for Mr. Kelly, the Southern Command and Southern Border. And we'll hope that uh, they lead with this, the uh, measured uh, caution of a leader that uh, has some sense of history uh, in moving forward in whatever their policy develops to be in uh, in Syria. Well, the U.S. airstrikes there early Friday morning was an aggression against the sovereign state and in violation of international law, the Kremlin said in a statement. Russia also suspends, um, suspended the agreement with the United States to avoid mid-air collisions over Syria in the wake of airstrikes. This is an agreement made under the previous administration that requires each state to inform the other when airstrikes are about to be undertaken. It made for a um, Safety precautions when engaging military targets, but rather peculiar given the fact that Russia is an ally of Syria and no doubt would inform Syria whenever strikes were announced. U.S. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson said Thursday that either Russia has been complicit in the attacks or Russia has been simply incompetent. Peskov from Russia said that the U.S. has ignored past incidents of the use of chemical weapons by Syrian rebels. And he argued that the Syrian government has destroyed its chemical weapons stockpiles under international control. Well, that has since been disputed. And there are charges that Russia not only was aware of that fact, uh, but lied when they said that they oversaw the destruction of all of Syria's chemical weapons. President Trump said it is uh, in the vital national interest of the United States to prevent and deter the spread and use of deadly chemical weapons. Tonight, I call on all civilized nations to join in seeking an end to to the slaughter and bloodshed in Syria and also to end terrorism of all kinds and all types. It's a pretty broad appeal. Let's hope the leadership will follow. Meanwhile, senators are debating the use of uh, executive action in the prosecution of this strike and whether Trump has the authority to do so. From another story that was in the Fox News, the other story, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, has told CNN that removing Syrian President Bashar al-Assad from power is now a priority, cementing an extraordinary U-turn in the Trump administration's stance on the embattled leader. It was just days before the chemical strike that uh, it was announced that that was not the priority of the administration. Meanwhile, ex-Obama officials are showing uh, their true colors on Syria after the strikes. Strikes on the Assad regime uh, have reopened the divide among former Obama administration officials over their much-critiqued Syria policy. Some Barack Obama allies criticized the president and defended the former administration's diplomatic approach, while others could hardly contain their relief that the U.S. had taken military action in response to chemical weapons use. So it's been a very... uh, controversial, um, debated decision on the part of uh, those in the previous administration and the present uh, Congress. Meanwhile, a Russian warship has entered the eastern Mediterranean Sea on Friday and is heading toward the uh, two U.S. Navy destroyers that launched missile strikes into Syria, according to media sources. The Russian frigate Admiral Grigovich um, crossed through the uh, Bosphorus Strait a few hours ago from the Black Sea. This was from earlier today, according to U.S. defense officials. The warship is now steaming in the direction of the U.S. warships. The admirable, uh, admiral rather, from that ship is armed with advanced 
uh, cruise missiles. Also on Friday, one of the American destroyers that launched the missiles into Syria started heading to an undisclosed location to rearm. The U.S. struck a Syrian air base in retaliation. However, that air base apparently has been used since that strike, uh, raising questions about how effective uh, the uh, effort was in either sending a signal or uh, making it uh, more difficult for them to uh, engage in chemical weapons use moving forward. Again, we'll talk about that with James Phillips later in the five o'clock hour. Well, a senior U.S. official says the United States has concluded that Russia knew in advance about Syria's chemical weapons attack last week. Not just that the chemical weapons existed, but that the chemical attack was going to uh, was undertaken. The official says a Russian operated drone flew over a hospital in Syria as victims of the attack were rushing to get treatment. Hours after the drone left, a Russian-made fighter jet-bombed the hospital in what American officials believe was an attempt to cover up the uses of, rather the usage of the chemical weapons. Until today, U.S. officials had said they weren't sure if the drone was operated by Russia or Syria. The senior official said it's still not clear who was flying the jet that bombed the hospital. The official said the presence of the drone couldn't have been a a coincidence and that Russia must have known the chemical weapons attack was coming and that victims were seeking treatment. The official wasn't authorized to speak publicly on intelligence matter and demanded anonymity so that this is not verifiable at this point. Uh, But we do know that there was a drone that flew over the hospital that was later attacked by whom and uh, under what circumstance, not altogether clear. Finally, U.S. officials are keeping a keen eye on a Russian complex nestled on the edge of a volcanic crater in Nicaragua. The center, which is believed to be a satellite station, has been built near the Laguna, well, in Managua, the capital of the Central American nation. Well, the Washington Post reports the local government described the complex as simply a tracking site of the Russian version of a GPS satellite system. But not everyone is convinced it isn't something more sinister. Clearly, there's been a lot of activity and it's on the uptick now, says U.S. officials and experts on Central America. Uh, other officials said there are concerns the hub could be of dual-use facil- facility, rather, meaning it could house equipment and workers with the ability to conduct electronic surveillance against American citizens. From where the compound is located, it offers those who are based there a clear view of the U.S. Embassy about 10 miles away in the heart of Managua. One local um, spoke about the type of people working at the GPS center. I have no idea, she told the Times when asked about the rumors it was a spy center before adding they are Russian and they speak Russian and they carry uh, around Russian apparatus, end quote. Not very useful. But the increase in activity is the latest in a growing string of similar upticks by Putin's government in recent years, including sending troops into Crimea, backing Ukrainian separatists and the country's involvement in Syria and Iraq. Security experts, according to The Times, believe this could be different, however, as it could be a direct response to American activity in Eastern Europe. And while the U.S. is not entirely alarmed, it is on alert and acting accordingly. Accordingly, a new State Department chief appointed to the landlocked country was moved there from uh, the Russian desk. Continue to follow that story should it develop. And at this point, it's not altogether clear that it will. 30 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back 33 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the United States and China wrapped up the two-day presidential summit by uh, announcing a 100-day plan to improve strained trade ties and to boost cooperation between the rival nations. But they appeared to reach no clear path forward on North Korea. Well, Trump aides who participated in the talks described a productive first meeting between the leaders, saying they exhibited positive chemistry. Commerce Secretary Wilbert Ross said that the two sides agreed to speed up trade talks to help close uh, loop, uh, a lopsided imbalance rather in China's favor, a common campaign trail complaint by Mr. Trump. Uh, this may be ambitious, but it's a big sea change in the pace of discussions. It's important symbolism of the growing rapport between the two countries. Well, Trump advisors said the goal, at least from the U.S. side, was to increase American exports to China, but they offered no details about how they plan to achieve that goal. Treasury Secretary Stephen Munchen uh, said there was acknowledgement from the Chinese side that we do need to get to a more balanced trade environment. But the surprise U.S. military response to Syrian President Assad uh, apparent uh, the chemical weapons attack on civilians threw a wild card into the summit. Um, Trump told Xi about the attack and explained the rationale behind it, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson said. And of course, that's during the summit. Tillerson insisted that Xi was not rattled by Trump's decision. He said the uh, president of China expressed an appropriate an appreciation rather for the president's letting him know and providing the rationale and said, um, as it uh, was told to me, he understood that such a response is necessary when people are killing children, end quote. China was long or rather has long objected to the idea of unilateral U.S. military action in Syria. And Beijing has uh, said it prefers a multilateral approach, although over the course of six brutal years of war, it has repeatedly used its veto power to vote with Russia against U.N. Security Council resolutions on Syria, including in December of last year, a plan for a seven day ceasefire in Aleppo and more recently a call for sanctions over the use of chemical weapons. At a daily news briefing on Friday, a spokesman for the Chinese foreign ministry reiterated China's support for a political settlement and said it was urgent to prevent any further deterioration of the situation there. President Xi doesn't like surprises and the fact that he was photographed shaking President Trump's hand and smiling at his declaration of friendship while the United States made a surprise military move was not going to be a, a popular in China. Top Chinese uh, leaders ex- uh, exit Uh, exist rather in the world where public appearances are tightly choreographed and the news media is controlled and protocol is paramount. On Thursday night, conservative U.S. news media painted the Syrian hit as a bold but calculated warning to China. He's sending a message to China, said one retired Army general, Jack Keane, speaking on Sean Hannity's program. He's telling the Chinese that, listen, the North Koreans are trying to weaponize intercontinental ballistic missiles And the rhetoric is uh, they will use them against my country and my people. Don't push me into a corner where I have to use military option to deal with them. That would be horrific. That would mean war on the Korean Peninsula, end quote. Well, that's quite a bit to um, suggest was the intention. But the Global News, uh, the Global Times, a Communist Party-controlled newspaper known for its nationalist tone, viewed the missile strike as a projection of strength. In an editorial, the paper said Trump launched the strike to establish his authority as U.S. president. He wants to prove that he dares to do whatever Obama didn't dare to do, the newspaper said. He also wants to prove to the world that he is uh, not just a president businessman and he will use U.S. military force without any hesitation when he thinks it's necessary. 
end quote. Well, on North Korea, Tillerson said the Chinese agreed that the mounting threat of Pyongyang's nuclear weapons program was reached a very serious stage, but he said there was no discussion of any package deal in which Beijing would increase pressure on Pyongyang or in exchange for the United States curbing military drills with South Korea. Well, the two sides had a real commitment to work together to see if this could be resolved in a peaceful way, Tillerson said. But he warned that Pyongyang must halt its provocative nuclear and ballistic missile testing before diplomatic talks can begin. In order for that to happen, North Korea has to change its posture, Tillerson said, and that will probably require intervention on the part of China. Meanwhile, the administration may be looking to flex its military might a bit by sending an aircraft carrier group to the Korean Peninsula. The Guardian reports that the move appears to be a way for the U.S. to say it's uh, it isn't happy with North Korea's missile test from earlier this month. U.S. Pacific Command ordered the Carl Vinson strike group north as a prudent measure to maintain readiness and presence in the Western Pacific, said the commander Dave Benham, a spokesman at the U.S. Pacific Command. The number one threat in the region continues to be North Korea due to its reckless, irresponsible and destabilizing program of missile tests and pursuit of nuclear weapon capability, he said in an unusually forceful statement. The move is a day or so after the leak to NBC News on Uh, Some of the options being considered regarding North Korea and Secretary of State Rex Tillerson's comments that China would be more involved in dealing with Kim Jong-un. Jazz wrote um, yesterday that uh, the leak shouldn't have happened, but it's possible it was done to say to someone, China, that the U.S. is serious about smacking down North Korea in one shape or form. Well, Tillerson uh, may have given more credence to this uh, theory and comments he made to CBS Face the Nation on China and North Korea. I think it was a very useful and productive exchange, he said, referring to President Xi, who clearly understands and I think agrees that the situation has intensified and has reached a certain level of threat that action has to be taken. And indeed, the Chinese, even themselves, have said that they do not believe the conditions are right today to engage in discussions with the government in Pyongyang. And so what I think we're hopeful, again, um, quoting from Tillerson, what I think is uh, we're hopeful uh, is that we can work today with the Chinese to change the condition in the minds of the DPRK leadership. And then at that point, perhaps a, dis- a discussion may be useful. But I think there's a shared view and no disagreement as to how dangerous the situation has become. He went on to say, and I think even China is beginning to recognize that this presents a threat to even to China's interests as well. I'm of two minds on this, he went on to say. Um, but the warship in the North Korean area sending a message uh, to the leadership there. Well, in the midst of so many news stories, uh, it may have been lost that Justice Neil Gorsuch vowed to be a faithful servant to the Constitution, was sworn in today to the Supreme Court, capping a rather grueling confirmation process and filling the seat once held by the late Antonin Scalia. The latest addition to the court was sworn in at a public ceremony in the Rose Garden. Justice Anthony Kennedy, Gorsuch's former boss, administered the judicial oath, the second of two Gorsuch uh, took. To the American people, I am humbled by the trusted place... uh, a trust placed in me today, Gorsuch said after taking the oath. I will never forget to, to whom much is given, much is expected. And I promise you that I will do all, it, all in my power, um, all my powers permit to be a faithful servant of the Constitution and laws of this great nation, end quote. Well, at the ceremony, President Trump, uh, Trump called Gorsuch a man of unmatched qualification and deeply devoted to the Constitution. I have no doubt you will rise to the occasion and the decisions you make will protect our Constitution today and for many generations of Americans to come, he said. Well, earlier, um, Judge, uh, rather, Justice Gorsuch took the constitutional oath in a private ceremony administered by Chief Justice John Roberts in the Supreme 
Supreme Court's justice uh, conference room. He was uh, accompanied by his wife, Louise, who held the Bible, and his two daughters. Gorsuch is 49. He takes the seat of the late Justice Scalia, who died in February of last year, whom Gorsuch has been uh, compared favorably to by conservatives, hopeful for another originalist on the court. Of course, one can never truly predict what the uh, justices will do once they've taken that oath of office and they've donned the black robe. He underwent a rocky confirmation hearing as he uh, faced stiff opposition from Democrats unhappy with how Republicans had blocked President Barack Obama's nominee, Judge Merrick Garland, after Scalia's death. He was not given a hearing, and that... um, continues to irritate them. Gorsuch is likely to cast a deciding vote in a number of high-profile cases, which also explains the tough confirmation process. The high stakes led Republicans to trigger the nuclear option to put an end to a partisan filibuster last week to kill that 60-vote filibuster threshold for Supreme Court nominees. Some of the uh, items that uh, the Supreme Court justice will be Uh, Weighing in on, we'll talk uh, with Travis Weber about later in the program. He'll be with us at about 530. He's with the Family Research Council. He's the director of the Center for Religious Liberty on uh, Judge Neil Gorsuch's impact in the short term and the long term. Well, Egypt's president called for a three-month state of emergency on Sunday after at least 44 people were killed And more than 100 more were injured in two Palm Sunday suicide attacks at Coptic Christian churches, each carried out by the ISIS terror group. Well, Sunday's first blast happened at St. George Church in the Nile Delta town of Tanta, where at least 27 people were killed and 78 others were wounded. Television footage sold the inside of the church where a large number of people gathered around what appeared to be the lifeless, bloody bodies covered with papers. A second explosion, which Egypt's interior minister says was caused by a suicide bomber who tried to storm St. Mark's Cathedral in the coastal town of Alexandria, left at least 17 dead and 48 injured. The attack came just after Pope uh, Tuandras, and they have popes in the uh, Coptic Church, leader of the uh, Orthodox Church uh, in uh, Alexandria, finished services, but aides told local media that he was unharmed. At least three police officers were killed in St. Mark's attack, the ministry Uh, Also said ISIS claimed responsibility for the attacks via the uh, media agency followed uh, following the group in recent video vowing to step up attacks against Christians who the group describes as infidels empowering the West against Muslims. So these believers, 44 dead, 100 injured in two church bombings in Egypt were singled out by ISIS for no other reason than the fact that they are followers of Christ. They associate Christianity with the West And so they would not uh, uh, permit them to worship uh, freely. Uh, Christians are our favorite prey. That's what ISIS said. The blast came at the start of Holy Week leading up to Easter. That was strategically planned. And just weeks before Pope Francis is due to visit Egypt, the Arab world's most populous country. The Egyptian president, um, who was just in the United States, accused unarmed uh, countries of fueling instability in the country, adding Egyptians have foiled plots and efforts by countries and fascist terrorist organizations that tried to control Egypt. He ordered the immediate deployment of troops to assist police in protecting vital facilities across the country. He was, uh, did not immediately detail the legal measures needed to declare the state of emergency, but according to the Egyptian constitution, the parliament majority must vote in favor of a state of emergency. We don't know what has happened up to this point. President Trump tweeted that he is uh, very sad to hear of the terrorist attack against the U.S., but added that he has uh, great confidence that Al- uh, El Sisi will handle the situation properly. The two leaders met at the White House 
uh, earlier this month. The State Department issued its own statement condemning the attacks, which it called barbaric. It's difficult to imagine being in a Palm Sunday service like most of us were this past weekend, celebrating uh, the days leading up to the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf, looking to the right and to the left, familiar faces in a congregation that might have swollen a bit because people tend to go to church during Holy Week when they might not otherwise go. And imagine 44 of those who are there with you. They don't return to their cars to go home because they're gone. They've been targeted for being followers of Christ. And that kind of persecution taking place all across the globe. During this Holy Week, let's remember the persecuted church. 46 minutes after four, we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 51 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Jason Scott Jones. He's writing for the stream. He's an old soldier, and he's worried about whether or not his son's going to be deployed to Syria. And he reflects on Iraq. He's just returned from there, looking at the... uh, the aftermath of our involvement there and wondering what, uh, if anything, we would produce a value in Syria if that were to be the next move. We'll also talk with Jason Phillips, Senior Research Fellow for Middle Eastern Affairs at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about the uh, launch of these uh, strikes in Syria and what uh, what cautionary tale we might look back on uh, moving forward. We'll talk with uh, Travis Weber. He's with the Family Research Council. He's the director of the Center for Religious Liberty. We're going to talk about Neil Gorsuch, who was sworn in earlier today as the newest U.S. Supreme Court Associate Justice, replacing the late Justice Antonin Scalia. Well, now that the court is restored to its full bench, uh, which um, impacts is he likely to make? Um, what high profile cases are pending? Um, we'll talk about uh, religious liberty, which is one of the hot topics that many are keeping their eyes on. That's coming up in the five o'clock hour. Well, Sweden will never go back to the days of mass immigration. After it emerged, uh, the Stockholm attacker was a failed asylum seeker. The Swedish prime minister has said, well, Stockholm was the subject of a terror attack uh, over the last weekend. Uh, Sweden will never go back, he says. Uh, He spoke out against the recent mass influx of immigrants coming to Sweden during the 2015 migrant crisis. And his comments come after a suspected terrorist, a 39-year-old from Uzbekistan, allegedly drove a stolen beer truck into pedestrians at a busy department store in Stockholm on Friday. Four people were killed, including uh, the the British father of two uh, and dozens more injured in the uh, harrowing attack that showed similarities to the London terror attack last month. Well, the Swedish prime minister said, and I quote, Sweden will never go back to the mass migration we had in autumn of 2015. Never. Everyone who has been denied a permit should return home. Well, this makes me feel enormously frustrated. If you have been denied a visa, uh, you are supposed to leave the country, he went on to say. And that was apparently the status of the individual responsible for this attack. He went on to say that terrorists want us to be afraid, want us to change our behavior, want us not to live our lives normally. But that is what we are going to do. Terrorists can never defeat Sweden. Never. End quote. Well, Sweden, a country of 10 million people, took uh, 244,000 asylum seekers in 2014 and 2015, the highest per capita number in Europe. There are more than 3,000 migrants reportedly living unlawfully in Stockholm alone and an estimated 12,000 migrants awaiting deportation from the country. Well, politicians there have now uh, demanded greater uh, powers, uh, which could have uh, could see failed asylum seekers being forced to report to police stations. Uh, It comes after details around the suspended uh, terrorist 
um, a suspected terrorist, rather, emerged with Sweden authorities revealing uh, that he had been given four weeks to leave the country after his final asylum appeal failed in December. Well, the construction worker and dad of four went underground uh, when he received the deportation order after his permanent residency application was rejected. He was being sought by police and immigration officials for deportation, but evaded them by giving a false address. Well, Swedish police said that the man was known to have had extremist sympathies. He already confessed to the crime and said he was uh, pleased at what he had done. Uh, The motive was not known, although one can imagine, but the method resembled previous attacks that used vehicles in Nice, in Berlin, in London, all of them um, claimed by Islamic State. Well, on Sunday, around 50,000 people gathered in Stockholm's uh, plaza for a vigil to stand united against terrorism. A second suspect was arrested in Stockholm District Court judge uh, refused to disclose if there was um, any links to that particular attack. But Sweden now in that uh, that uh, list as well. And they have uh, apparently apprehended the uh, the perpetrator. Well, at what point do we declare that the judiciary is facing a credibility crisis? That's a question David French asked in the National Review. When do we finally decide that laws passed by Congress have no meaning and that judges are able to rewrite them at will, often using the most laughable, specious reasoning? Well, the uh, uh, earlier last week, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals unilaterally revised the Civil Rights Act. Now, the court isn't uh, charged with lawmaking, with writing law, but rather interpreting laws that have been made. But anyway, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals unilaterally revised the Civil Rights Act, uh, the ban on employment discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex or national origin, so that it now includes a ban on sexual orientation discrimination as well. Never mind the actual words on the page, never mind the common meaning of the words then and now. All that matters is the right result, the triumph of the social justice super clause that is hidden in every law, regulation or constitution, sort of the penumbra that that uh, ultimately was uh, seen by the justices and no one else that ultimately gave us abortion on demand. The majority opinion crafted by Diane Wood insults our intelligence, Mr. French points out. She pretends to engage in standard statutory interpretation, attempting to divine what that devilishly complex word sex means. Here's an actual sentence. It is neither here nor there that the Congress that enacted the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and chose to include sex as a prohibited basis for employment discrimination, no matter why it did so, may not have realized or understood the full scope of the word it used. So apparently they didn't understand what the word sex meant. Let's translate. Congress had no idea what the word uh, uh, and that it was so darn broad, as Mr. French put it. Fortunately, however, she knows what it truly means. But the opinion uh, moves from comedy to farce when she attempts to prove that sexual orientation discrimination really is sex discrimination by posing a hypothetical. What if the lesbian woman in the case, Kimberly Hyberly, was really a straight man? A lesbian woman loves a woman. A straight man loves women. Thus, and this is the reasoning, I kid you not, if an employer treats the lesbian differently than the straight man, it has to be because of sex, not sexual orientation. After all, it's sexist and stereotyping to believe that women shouldn't love women. Hmm. This is pure sophistry. Obviously, it would be sex discrimination to treat gay men differently from lesbian women. But when you treat gays and straights differently, that's sexual orientation discrimination. This isn't a hard concept, but the goal isn't to convince, it's to rationalize. Well, in his concurring opinion, Judge Posner at least 
respects the public enough to be honest instead of indulging the majority's charade that the word sex encompasses sexual orientation, he announces a rule of statutory interpretation that he calls judicial interpretive updating. Judicial interpretive updating. Now, mind you, you could redefine what sex means in the Civil Rights Act. You could also redefine what race means and reverse the whole meaning if you allow judges to use what he terms judicial imperative updating. He's explicitly giving an old statute a fresh meaning, one that infuses the statute with Uh, vitality and significance today. According to Mr. Posner, the older the law, the more vulnerable it is to a contemporary judicial update. Here's an expert, uh, an excerpt rather. It's true that even today, if asked what the sex of plaintiff Hively, one would answer that she is female or that she is woman, not that she is lesbian. Lesbianism denotes a form of sexual or romantic attraction. It's not a physical sex identifier like masculinity or femininity. A broader understanding of the word sex entitled seven than the original understanding is thus required in order to be able to classify the discrimination of which Hively complains as a form of sex discrimination. This is an example of judicial interpretive updating. In other words, even now, sex still means sex, but that doesn't get Posner to the kind of social justice he seeks. So the meaning of the word must change and it must change immediately. Courtesy of the bench, applying a bit of judicial interpretive updating. Now, that may uh, work for you on one issue. It may work less on another issue. But when the bench is lawmaking, I think all of us need to be concerned. Five o'clock, we've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. When we return, we'll talk with Jason Scott Jones, writing for the stream. He's concerned about what's happening in Syria and whether or not we're going to see there what we see now in Iraq. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. In just a few moments, we're going to talk with Jason Scott Jones. But I also want to let you know we'll be talking with James Phillips, Senior Research Fellow for Middle Eastern Affairs at the Heritage Foundation, about the air strike on Syria and some cautions that ought to be considered before moving forward. He looks back at previous administrations and quagmires we found ourselves in. Travis Weber will also join us. He's with the Family Research Council, the director of the Center for Religious Liberty. We're going to talk about the uh, uh, swearing in of Judge Neil Gorsuch and the likely impact he's going to have both short and long term. So I hope you can stay with us. My next guest ponders whether or not his son might be deployed to uh, Syria. He's a soldier. He's the son of a soldier and he's uh, he's worried. He recently returned to uh, uh, Iraq earlier this year in uh, the process of of, of documentary that that he's uh, working on. But he writes a column for the stream and asks the questions and offers some insight that we ought to consider uh, following the uh, strikes in Syria uh, over the weekend. Thank you so much for joining us. Aloha, Georgine. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, uh, as I mentioned, you've been a soldier and a family of soldiers that served the country in uh, most of the wars uh, that the country has fought, um, and that your your son this week is deploying to the Middle East. Explain your concern about where your son might ultimately be deployed. Well, my son, you know, he landed today, and he arrived at his uh, where he's going to be staging from in the Middle East today. And and to be fair, I'd be writing about this and commenting on this, even if my son wasn't in the region. Mm-hmm. And his military occupational specialty, I don't have I don't have much fear for his safety. But, you know, the, the point of writing the article was I had just gotten back from 
I just returned from Iraq where I was documenting the catastrophe that was Barack Obama's policies in Iraq and Syria that led to the decimation of ancient religious and ethnic communities like the Chaldeans, the Assyrians, the Yazidis, the Kakai, the Armenians, and we could go on. Um, and my great fear is that as we, you know, we, we attacked Assad for his attack on Al-Qaeda, in effect acting as the Air Force for Al-Qaeda. And if we were to topple Assad, as it stands right now, Al-Qaeda and ISIS and al-Nusra would dominate Syria. Wherever they take ground, the first thing they do is liquidate the ethnic and religious minorities. And, you know, it's it's amazing the jump to certainty. The last time we were told Assad used chemical weapons, it turns out it was a rebel group allied with Turkey that used chemical weapons. The only side we know for certain, other than this most recent strike, that hasn't used chemical weapons is Assad. But my point is, do we really care about these people? And I do. I was a mile from ISIS just a couple of weeks ago. I could smell uh, in buildings that were still burning from uh, U.S. strikes, but that were booby-trapped by ISIS as they retreated. Um, you could still smell uh, burning flesh. And I care for these people. They're my friends, and I'm in regular communication with them. Many of the, the family members of the folks that I'm close to from Iraq are in Syria. And um, if Assad were to fall now, as it stands, uh, these Christians and other minorities would be liquidated. You um, uh, point out that uh, we've had bad intel in the past in conflicts and that you encourage your readers to remember the promises we made, for example, to Iraq and its people. We swore that we would uh, bring freedom, order, and prosperity. Uh, Iraqis remember that um, with some bitterness. What is their view on our engagement in that area and, the, quite frankly, the promises that we made? So the Iraqis are beautiful people, and the Kurds, I just have such an affection for them. And at one point, I just sort of uttered an, an apology as we were rolling through a region. Uh, literally, the houses were still smoldering. And I said, I'm sorry, we, we shattered your country, and then we left. And then an imam, a Muslim imam who I was with, he said, you know, you Americans think that you American people think that you're responsible for what happened here. But we're not so naive to think the American people have any control over what their government does. I know you think that you do. As an American, that's what you think. Um, but we don't blame you for the actions of your government here. And, 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 you know, I would. If I were in their shoes, I would blame us. And I can just imagine a scenario where this spirals out of control in Syria. We have Democrats who support the war now, just like they did the invasion of Iraq. They were the most ardent supporters of the invasion of Iraq until minutes after the invasion. Then they switched sides, called Republicans liars, and ran as anti-war candidates. Tulsi Gabbard is now being attacked by her fellow Democrats, the Democrat from Hawaii, who happens to be my congresswoman, for arguing for caution. And I tweeted out at her, you know, don't you know the Democrat playbook? If you support wars, then you oppose them and blame Republicans for tricking you. I can imagine a scenario in 2022 where you have a president, Gavin Newsom, doing an early withdrawal of U.S. troops from Syria, and then we see an, an, an absolute repeat. It's Groundhog Day. And I know that your listeners and I know the American people really do care. You know, it's a big world. And there are lots of things to care about. There have been a thousand Christians killed by Boko Haram in the past month. Christians are battling the Nubans in the southern Kordofan region of Sudan, are battling uh, an existential battle against the Islamist regime in Khartoum. The media doesn't whip us into a frenzy on these issues. We don't know. Um, so when they tell us Assad used chemical weapons against al-Qaeda, they don't, they, don't, they don't tell us it was against al-Qaeda. Uh, and the children died. We rightfully become very upset. 
But we have to remember how many children that, that our war in Iraq killed. Barack Obama's drone war killed over a thousand children. And um, this is the reality. War is, is, is children bursting into flames. It's families being decimated. It's societies dying. When I was in Iraq, I was in a monastery that had been there since 500 A.D. And there, there had been masses celebrated there every day since 500 A.D until the U.S. withdraw from Iraq, and then ISIS was just miles away, and they had to evacuate the priests from this monastery that had been there since before Mohammed was born. And that was the result of our invasion and then our leaving. And so we have to understand, do we have the fortitude um, to guarantee the security for ethnic and religious minorities in Syria if we were to topple Assad? And the only ones right now who would benefit from that are Iran, Russia, uh, ISIS, al-Nusra, and al-Qaeda. Mm. Well, let me ask you what you think about the president's strike and the uh, the explanation following that suggested that this was essentially a one-off, but that the priority had shifted and removing Assad through political means, presumably, has now become the priority that a couple of weeks ago it had not been. Well, and I hope that's the case. I had an article that came out yesterday arguing for Assad to leave and to be replaced by an Alawite. Um, you know, I think the era of Sykes-Pico is over. Uh, the, the folks there don't trust the West. Because of Sykes-Pico, they don't even have faith in their own regimes. And so a new polity organized around the interests of the really diverse ethnic and religious communities in the Middle East. And I think a lot of Americans don't even understand how diverse they are. Yeah. I didn't understand. I was, with, yeah. I was with an Iraqi general when I was in Iraq, and we met a, a group of people called the Kakai. And this Iraqi general had never even heard of the Kakash. And their religion is really ancient. It, it may go back, it, its roots go back maybe even to before Abraham. You know, I'm driving along, and they're like, you want to see the prophet Nahum's tomb? I'm sure, and it's right there. It's a very diverse uh, ethnic and religious community, and I know that we as Americans, uh, you know, something that this imam said to me is that Americans have such a uh, just souls that your leaders have to, um, they even have to play on your goodness to do evil. He said, other people you can play on their, their, their greed or their envy or their lust for power, but to play to get to inspire Americans to do even evil, you have to play on their goodness. Yeah, rouse a and sense of, of justice. Tell us about the project, because we're almost out of time, that you're working on. You were there uh, filming and preparing for a project. Yeah, it's a documentary. It's going to be coming out. We're actually announcing it in a couple of weeks. It's going to be crowdsourced. It's called Obama's Legacy, and it's we follow a young Yazidi girl who is a sex slave of ISIS in her campaign to get Barack Obama's Nobel Peace Prize back. And we'll be going from Iraq to Syria to Libya, to South Sudan, to the Crimea. And this Yazidi girl will be traveling the world looking at the um, the tragedy that was Barack Obama's foreign policy. And, and it's in her campaign to get the uh, Nobel Prize Committee to, to take his Nobel Prize back. Hmm, very interesting. Well, I'll uh, wait to hear more about that. Hey, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate it. Again, Jason Scott Jones writing for The Stream, uh, asking re- uh, questions about uh, deploying to Syria if that were to be uh, the, the follow-up to the strikes that took place over the, the weekend and reflecting on the legacy in Iraq. Up next, we're going to talk with James Phillips, a senior research fellow for Middle Eastern Affairs. We'll talk about those same strikes uh, and some cautions that he is suggesting need to be considered looking back at previous administrations who uh, were moved by uh, events that led to unintended consequences. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part by Zero Res. 
Well, my next guest is a senior research fellow for Middle Eastern Affairs at the Heritage Foundation. And in a column he wrote for The Daily Signal, he points out that the president, President Donald Trump, ordered a cruise missile strike against the Syrian airfield used by the uh, warplanes that launched last week's chemical attack against Syrian civilians. He points out that the strike was an appropriate, proportional and carefully calibrated response to the Assad regime's repeated use of illegal chemical weapons. But while it was a bold tactical strike that sent a powerful message that Syrian President Bashar Assad's behavior was unacceptable, it is merely the opening bid in what's likely to develop into a protracted diplomatic crisis. He points out that the president reacted viscerally to pictures of poisoned babies and moved decisively to launch the punitive reprisal. But that limited military action is unlikely to be decisive in and of itself. Well, James Phillips uh, Phillips joins us again. He's a senior research fellow for Middle Eastern Affairs at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, First of all, your thoughts on uh, the president's visceral response, as you rightly describe it, uh, to images of children suffering the, uh, the after effects of a chemical strike by the Assad regime. Well, I think that that has humanized the president, and it's a natural reaction, but I think it's a mistake to uh, respond emotionally to mm-hmm. the very brutal images that continue to you know, pour out of the Middle East. And I remember back uh, in Thanksgiving 1992 when President George H.W. Uh, Bush reacted viscerally to the pictures of starving Somalians on, on the CNN reports, and uh, the U.S. mounted Operation Restore Hope to feed the Somalians. Uh, but when the Clinton administration came in, they discovered that one of the reasons so many Somalians were starving was that uh, 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 warlords were pilfering the food supplies and preventing them to get from getting to where they were most needed. And so the the bad administration uh, elevated the mission to putting Somalia back together again, more of a nation-building mission. And that led uh, to what I considered to be an oxymoron, the concept of a humanitarian war mm. where we were essentially killing Somalians so that we could save them. And that led to, you know, the Black Hawk Down episode in which the U.S. lost 18 special operations forces in Mogadishu when two of their helicopters were shot down. And then the U.S., uh, the year uh, shortly after that, pulled out completely. And so my, my point in writing that was that, you know, we have to be careful about mission creep when you do these humanitarian operations. And that although the initial strike, I think, was justified, I think it would be a mistake to escalate to the uh, to make, uh, you know, the, the pulling Assad out of power a military goal, uh, because I think that's a bridge too far. Mm. And it seems that some of the rhetoric from uh, Trump officials suggests that, that that has now been elevated to a priority. Now, how they intend to go about that, I suppose, would, will make the difference. But uh, does it seem that uh, given the response that the uh, the president uh, undertook uh, in in the missile strikes has led to uh, perhaps moving that up the list as a, the potential of a military uh, answer to removing Assad? Or uh, did the rhetoric from your perspective seem like they're talking about a political solution? Yeah, I think there was a period of confusion over several mm-hmm. days. Uh, 
Uh, but I think the administration has clarified that the, you know, removing Assad from power is a long-term diplomatic goal that can be, best be accomplished through diplomacy and sanctions and perhaps uh, uh, giving greater support to Syrian rebel groups to put pressure on the Assad regime, but not necessarily a direct military action by the U.S. against Assad. You also, in your column, uh, which is titled, After Missile Strike in Syria, Trump Must Avoid Mission Creep, which I think many people are wringing their hands in hope that that will be the case. And you point out that humanitarian operations produce, uh, oftentimes produce unintended consequences. And you uh, point once again to U.S. humanitarian intervention, this time in Somalia. It was perceived as an unacceptable act of imperialism by those on the ground there, and it resulted in a number of events that were not anticipated. Good intentions went awry. Right. Uh, And in the Middle East, no good deed goes unpunished. And when the U.S. undertook uh, that uh, emergency food airlift to Somalia, uh, next door uh, in Sudan, uh, there was an individual uh, uh, in exile from Saudi Arabia there named uh, Osama bin Laden, and he interpreted that U.S. Uh, food lift operation, Operation Restore Hope, as an act of imperialism. So he dispatched some of his followers to train uh, the militias of several warlords, including uh, this one Idid, uh, who was the target of the raid that went awry in the Black Hawk Down episode, and Al-Qaeda trainers also taught the Somalis how to rig uh, RPG uh, 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 rifle launch grenades to blow up in midair and take down helicopters, and they had learned that from the Afghans fighting the Soviets, and that was believed to have been uh, uh, the tactic that brought down those two helicopters over Mogadishu. Uh, also, um, Al-Qaeda's first attack against Americans was launched against uh, Marines uh, that were in, staying in a hotel in Yemen, which is Osama bin Laden's ancestral homeland. And they were staying there while transiting to Somalia to help feed the Somalians. Uh, Al-Qaeda planted a bomb that mis- exploded after they left, but not, nevertheless killed two people. And, you know, and that's one of the uh, examples of uh, unintentional consequences that I mentioned about, uh, you know, what began as a purely humanitarian operation. Now, we we have heard from the administration that they're not likely to make this a military uh, operation. So we can at least sigh some bit of relief at this point. Um, but what, what are your thoughts about what should happen at, at this point? What should come next? Well, hopefully there's uh, very active uh, diplomatic contacts going on behind the scenes, especially between the U.S. and uh, Moscow. Uh, It it is true that Putin has refused to see Rex Tillerson, but, you know, that's not to say that he wouldn't accept a phone call from Donald Trump at some point, uh, because I think it would be important to drive a wedge between Russia and Syria on this issue, Mm -hmm. if possible. I think the administration should explore that, uh, because uh, otherwise, if if Putin digs in and continues to deny that this even happened, uh, then, you know, we're likely to get nowhere. And I think Assad may try to launch chemical attacks again. 
Uh, two things. Uh, one is how effective was this strike in communicating a message? And if it was effective, what do you think that message was? And secondly, there's been a lot of criticism about some coordination with the Russians uh, in that none of their aircraft were damaged in this strike. Are we obligated to inform them? I know there's an agreement, or at least there has been agreement, to avoid when there are uh, efforts to um, a strike in that area to inform one another. Uh, your thoughts on both of those questions? Well, I think uh, Putin uh, has uh, ended the deconfliction agreement, at least uh, the Russians claim that he ended it, although it may still be going on at, at lower levels. Uh, and that's kind of a, and, and cutting off your nose to spite your face, because under that agreement, uh, the Russians were spared uh, uh, disastrous consequences if they had inadvertently strayed into the, the path of, you know, the U.S., uh, uh, military uh, warplanes over Syria, uh, and that was the channel through which the Russians were warned so that they could move some of their personnel off that base that was struck. Uh, and then the, let's see, I, what was the first question? Oh, I was asking whether or not you think the strike was effective in communicating a message and what you thought that message might be. Oh, all right. I think it was effective because it was a very uh, decisive uh, action, although, you know, we should keep this in perspective. This was kind of a pinprick tactical airstrike. Uh, but the point, I think, was clearly made that the U.S. Uh, has some visibility into uh, Syria's internal operations when it comes to chemical weapons attacks, and that should give them pause. Uh, and also, if uh, Assad continues down this road, uh, then, uh, which I think it is unlikely at this point, but if he does, he would risk being targeted personally uh, by the Trump administration in the same way that the Reagan administration targeted uh, Colonel Gaddafi after the, uh, the, the, the LaBelle disco bombing back in 1986. Yeah, and that put the fear of God in him for at least a, a period of time under the Reagan administration. Well, we'll continue to follow this story as it develops. I appreciate your joining us to help uh, us gain some understanding and perspective. Thank you. Again, uh, James Phillips is a senior research fellow for Middle Eastern Affairs at the Heritage Foundation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, in all the news today, the uh, swearing in of Judge uh, Neil Gorsuch uh, got lost a bit in the news. But today he was sworn in as the newest U.S. Supreme Court Associate Justice, replacing the late Justice Antonin Scalia. Well, there are impacts to his uh, confirmation and now his swearing in. The immediate impact, of course, uh, restoring the court's uh, full bench. We're here to talk with us about the likely long and short term impact of the Neil Gorsuch um, a, a confirmation is uh, Travis Weber. He's a Family Research Council's director of the Center for Religious Liberty. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Well, let's talk um, about the confirmation of uh, Judge Neil Gorsuch. Of course, it was fraught with uh, all kinds of peril leading up to today's swearing-in ceremony. Uh, will that um, uh, conflict, that fighting back and forth, the change of Senate rules, have an impact on his ability to serve as the kind of Supreme Court associate that we anticipate? Well, yeah, I don't think it'll have an impact on him now that he's on the court. Certainly, um, 
you know, there was a lot of heat and attention on the confirmation process, but that's over. Uh, both sides know it's over, and um, he's going to proceed now on to the work of the court. Well, he was sworn in twice today. Can you describe the process of uh, the swearing in uh, of a Supreme Court associate? It's been a while since we've had the opportunity to not witness one, but witness the second. Right. Well, um, there are, he was sworn in today. There, there are two oaths taken, two swearing in processes. One at the White House, in which uh, Justice Kennedy, who, um, uh, Judge Gors- Justice Gorsuch uh, clerked four years ago, swore him in. And then one at the court itself, in which Justice Roberts swore him in. And, um, you know, I think it was in line with uh, the way he's conducted himself uh, throughout this process, exuding um, uh, a dignity and and humility um, in, in taking on this, this role. Uh, that was the impression that I got watching today. That was the impression mm-hmm. that uh, he gave me during the confirmation process. And, you know, I think that in combination with his strong originalist record on the bench on the 10th Circuit um, gives us hope for how he's going to rule on the Supreme Court. Well, as I mentioned earlier, he is... Uh, taking the position that was uh, vacated by the death of Justice Antonin Scalia. The court now is restored to its full bench, uh, and it has the potential to affect several high-profile cases uh, waiting to be decided. Can you tell us a bit about uh, a few of those things we should look for? Sure. Uh, So some of the cases we're watching closely are on the issue of religious liberty. One, um, the 19th of April, or arguments will be held in that case, that's uh, not too far in the future, and, and Justice Gorsuch will be participating in that case. It's a case of Trinity Lutheran Church versus Pauli. Oral arguments next week, and then a decision by the end of June, and the issue there is whether um, uh, churches and religious institutions can participate on equal footing uh, with non-religious institutions when it comes to public grants, in this case a state grant to refinish a playground surface, and whether um, that's a violation of the Federal Establishment Clause to treat them um, unequally. And so, you know, I think um, uh, we hope that the court rules in favor of the church here, and I think uh, Justice Gorsuch will do so. In addition, there are several cases um, that the court has not accepted yet that we're monitoring because they're uh, currently pending, and, and the court could take them up. Uh, Sterling versus the United States over whether a military service member is protected by the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in posting a Bible verse at their military workstation. And Masterpiece Cakes uh, versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission over whether that small business owner in Colorado is protected by the First Amendment when the state wants to use sexual orientation on discrimination laws to force them to participate in a same-sex wedding ceremony by making the cake. And so uh, those cases the court has been taken up, but they're going to look at them. And uh, there are another, a number of other issues in which the court's likely to take over the next year or two that concern the issue of religious liberty, which we'll be monitoring closely. Yeah, you're right. Justice Gorsuch may also make a difference on some petitions to come. For example, the emergency appeals on the numerous injunctions rather that were issued by the president by executive order temporarily suspending travel from terrorist uh, safe havens. Uh, he may have an opportunity to determine whether or not the Supreme Court takes that up. Um, as uh, five dissenting judges from the Ninth Circuit pointed out, those decisions um, confound Supreme Court president and the uh, constitutional and federal statutory provisions that authorize the president's action. So he will uh, likely have an opportunity to decide whether to take that up and then ultimately to determine uh, the outcome. I, I totally, absolutely agreed. Um, you know, those those cases 
involve uh, areas of immigration law. But I think if you look at, you know, kind of how the lower court judges dealt with all those, it was clearly uh, the political, it was such a political decision when those judges put a stop to President Trump's executive orders. And regardless of what you think about the policy, the legal question is clear. President Trump has the authority to do what he did there, and it's only through activist judicial thinking that you get to a place where you would claim there's somehow a violation of the Constitution. One of the things that was interesting to me as I uh, listened in on and observed the the process of getting him to this uh, swearing in earlier today was the fact that uh, Justice uh, uh, Gorsuch seemed to have more knowledge of the role of uh, the the Supreme Court of a judge than did many of his inquisitors. Uh, He seemed to have more understanding of constitutional law than many of the senators who were quizzing him. Um, And it it exposed, I think, uh, particularly on the left, a desire to reshape the purpose, the function of a, a sitting Supreme Court justice, I imagine any other federal bench as well, and what their role is, abdicating a little bit of of their uh, power to the bench uh, it seemed to me uh, you're you're completely completely correct you know it was it was a joy to watch the confirmation process in, in that regard because um he you know the senators would try to trap him often and he would respond by stepping back explaining uh, the functions of, of government, where they were skipping over or making erroneous assumptions, and, and just leave it at that. You know, often they would press him for how he'd rule in a certain case, when in reality, the only reason the court was ruling in those cases was because it had injected itself into making up constitutional rights, when in reality, that should be left to Congress. So he would just say, well, look, if you all want to change the law in this area, you can change it, but that's not our job. And he's absolutely correct. Uh, and that gives us a great heart as we look to how he's going to uh, rule from the Supreme Court now. Well, yeah, because the courts have been used by some politicians as a means of accomplishing their goals without the political uh, capital necessary to make the case uh, to the American people or to their constituents. So it was refreshing to hear his his utter commitment to doing what a judge is, is called upon to do. And that's, uh, that's very encouraging to me. So Justice Gorsuch sits on the bench. He replaces the conservative that preceded him with great respect and regard for the man he's replacing. I suppose the the, the bigger battle is coming uh, when or if the next justice under this administration uh, moves forward. Not only is the uh, uh, is the threshold a bit lower uh, given uh, the so-called nuclear option being exercised this time to address a political filibuster, um, but the balance of the court will be uh, in full display uh, in the next um, next go by the U.S. Senate. I think you're you're very you're very correct. Again, in terms of um, uh, you know, assuming it could be, let's assume it could be Justice Kennedy. Um, he's commonly seen as the swing vote, and uh, that would undoubtedly bring more pressure and scrutiny and, and attention on that uh, confirmation process to replace him. Uh, moreover. Uh, Justice Gorsuch is seen as uh, keeping the status quo in, with respect to at least replacing Justice Scalia, who was a consistently originalist vote, and Justice Gorsuch is likely to be the same. And so in that way, uh, in some sense, other future confirmation battles could be more heated. Uh, you know, but let me just make the point here. The fact that there's so much attention on this at all exposes the problem, which is that the court has taken on uh, uh, power by injecting itself into lawmaking, mm-hmm. really, in the last 50 years, 
tr- taking on these social rulings when they should be left to Congress. The fact that it decides these issues at all is the reason it's so controversial, because everyone, know, everyone knows on both sides of the aisle it's going to decide them, when in reality it never used to be this way before it injected itself. And so really, you know, I hope that Justice Gorsuch can uh, be one step, and I think he understands this, in, in the process of how, having that power go back to Congress and not be in the hands of the court and hopefully uh, solve the, the, the very uh, dynamic which got us here in the first place. I think you're absolutely right. Travis Weber, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate it. Travis Weber is with the Family Research Council. He's the director of the Center for Religious Liberty. While the result of this new Supreme Court justice, who gives us every reason to believe he will uphold the Constitution and force the Bill of Rights, reign in an administrative state that's expanded its powers and reached far beyond its constitutional and legal authority, one can only hope and pray that we'll see uh, not only the balance restored, but perhaps the court uh, looking more carefully and closely at its original purpose. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. And we're back. Final segment of the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, The Case for Christ, the feature film based on Lee Strobel's best-selling book of the same name, with an A-plus cinema score, drew about $3.9 million box office. That's dollars, by the way, in its opening weekend, and that ranks in the weekend's top ten films. I don't know how many films are out there, but that's pretty impressive. With that strong showing, producers are expanding The Case for Christ to approximately 1,600 theaters nationwide this weekend, a 40% jump. Now, I don't know how many believers are going to be at the movies this weekend, but if you are going, this is a good one. Uh, to see during this Holy Week. The film traces uh, Strobel's true story of an award-winning investigative journalist and determined atheist who sets out to disprove his wife's newfound Christian faith. It sort of ruined everything for him. Strobel said it's a love story and a thriller detective film. He says he's delighted it resonated with audiences and opened so strongly. The case for Christ opens an honest, uh, rather offers an honest and compelling look at the uh, reliability of the resurrection through the eyes of a man desperate to disprove it. That's what the CEO of Pure Flix and producer Michael Scott said. For those with questions and others who just want to affirm their faith, Lee Strobel's dramatic on-screen uh, investigation is clearly resonating with people. Seeing this film is the perfect way to celebrate Easter this Sunday. Well, a hard-driving journalist, Strobel was uh, where he expected to be at work. He was on top. His award-winning investigative reporting had earned him a promotion to legal editor at the Chicago Tribune. But things were going, well, less well at home, where his wife, Leslie's newfound faith in Christ flew against everything he believed, or rather didn't believe, uh, as uh, an avowed atheist. He utilized his journalistic and legal training. He uh, begins the quest to debunk the claims of Christianity in order to save his marriage that is crumbling. Chasing down the biggest story of his career, he becomes, uh, he rather comes face to face with unexpected results that changed everything he knows uh, or knew at the time to be true. So it is his story. Writing a a, a column on the uh, Fox News site, he uh, points out that when atheists claim there is no evidence for Christianity, I disagree. When liberal theologians assert there are many paths to heaven, I object. When young people say God isn't relevant in the 21st century, I beg to differ. When analysts predict the decline of the evangelical church, I roll my eyes. Are my positions popular? Maybe not, but they flow out of convictions that have only grown stronger in the midst of the evolving religious landscape in America. I've seen the surveys. I'm aware of the rise of the so-called nuns who profess no religious affiliation, and frankly, that doesn't trouble me very much. Rather than claiming to be Christians, as many 
many have done in years past. Now these people are um, not willing to, um, to, are now rather willing to be more honest. Today, it's socially acceptable in many places, even desirable to be a skeptic. An atheist is no longer uh, considered such a derogatory term. The truth is that America was never as much a Christian nation as some historians wish it were. There was a veneer of faith over the land. Respectable people went to church. Now they don't pretend anymore. That's okay. I was a scoffer once myself before spiritual skepticism became trendy. As a law-trained journalist at the Chicago Tribune, I did didn't have any patience for mythology, superstition, or make-believe. Just give me the facts was my motto. My wife was agnostic. Then one day, through the influence of a friend and a church, she met Jesus. The first word to come into uh, my mouth, divorce. As portrayed in The Case for Christ, the forthcoming movie based on our story, I set out to disprove her beliefs and rescue her from the cult of Christianity. Oops, after nearly two years, the scales tipped. Having encountered the persuasive evidence of Christianity, I concluded it would have required more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a believer. I ended up taking a 60% pay cut, leave my journalism career, become a pastor. For 30 years now, I've watched the world from the vantage, from the vantage point of the pulpit. What's the view from there? More and more people growing weary of their materialistic and celebrity-saturated culture and interested in finding uh, interest, rather, in finding exhilaration in Jesus. The proliferation of ministries that help the hurting, feed the hungry, replace despair with hope, addicts rescued, broken families put together again, racial reconciliation, selflessness, displacing self-interest. While some churches are closing, many of those with relevant and biblically faithful messages aren't just growing, they're burgeoning. In short, I'm bullish on Christianity. We're entering a golden era of Christian apologetics, where scholars are sharing compelling arguments and evidence for the faith. At the same time, our shrinking world has exposed more people to the works, to the stark difference between the world's religions, and that is destroying the once popular notion that they all teach basically the same thing or have similar grounding truth. I see throngs of young people electrified by their faith. Give me a hundred of them versus 10,000 with a cultural Christianity that doesn't revolutionize their character or values. Let me share a little secret. In our increasingly chaotic world, the Christian message of truth and grace continues to resonate among people who are tired of the shifting sands of postmodern relativism. No doubt about it. Count me among those who are optimistic about the future of the church in America. And Lee Strobel, of course, is the author of the best-selling The Case for Christ, which released a, a motion picture on the 7th, which was Friday of last week. Did very well in the box office and now... Uh, is showing in greater numbers of theaters. Kudos uh, to the movie and Lee Strobel. Well, taking a look at uh, what's coming up the remainder of this week on Tuesday, we're going to talk with Barrett Tillman. He's the author of On Wave and Wing, the 100-Year Quest to Perfect the Aircraft Carrier. Kind of an interesting subject. On Wednesday, we are going to feature our Africa New Life Radiothon, and I'm so looking forward to giving you an opportunity to learn more about a new program that Africa New Life has launched on the border of uh, a country that has made this particular city, this community, more difficult and challenging and where starvation is a constant threat. Uh, that will be on Wednesday, Africa New Life Radiothon, and you can go to our website, kpdq.com, if you'd like more details about what to anticipate and how you might consider, even now, uh, prayerfully consider helping 
meet the needs of this community. On Thursday, we'll talk with Elizabeth Thompson. She's the author of When God Says Wait, Navigating Life's Detours and Delays Without Losing Your Faith, Your Friends, or Your Mind. Waiting on the Lord, which is what we are told in Scripture often to do, can be very challenging, especially for 21st century Americans, where we don't like to wait for anything. We don't want to wait for the light to change. We don't want to wait for the microwave to cook the popcorn. It takes two minutes. We don't want to wait for the computer to um, uh, to finish downloading something. We want things immediately, and we are more and more in that um, in that vein. We don't want to wait for uh, for traffic because we need to get where we need to go and we need to get there now. But when God says wait, there is value in that process. And navigating these detours and delays, as uh, Elizabeth Thompson puts it, will help all of us um, not not just um, uh, survive, but thrive in the waiting as the scripture urges us to do. And then on Friday, being Good Friday, um, the station here has allowed us to take that day uh, for celebration, for reflection. Good Friday, of course, uh, bears that moniker because we benefited from the tremendous sacrifices that were made on our behalf. It's good for us if we are believers in Christ, for Jesus, however, to take on himself the sins of the whole world uh, is such a tragedy for this perfect man, this son of God, uh, to have done that on our behalf um, is a, a very difficult thing to consider, particularly when we reflect on the fact that our own sins were born by him on that day. So we're going to um, uh, we've been given the opportunity to take that day off, and I'm going to take full advantage of it for worship and reflection. Well, I want to thank you for listening to The Georgine Rice Show today. Thank Clark Hilton for engineering, James Blend for engineering and producing uh, portions of today's program as well. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.